Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Supercharge your health with the Doctor's Kitchen Cookbook by Dr. Ruby Audula. Packed with a hundred delicious, easy recipes, plus lots of lifestyle tips and information. Available in all good bookshops. Take your first steps towards optimum health today. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast with me, Dr. Rupi, where I'll be discussing the most important topics and concepts in the medicinal qualities of food and lifestyle. These are some of the things that I wrote about in my first book, The Doctor's Kitchen, blending together the science with delicious recipes inspired by cuisines from across the world. Now, one of the things I get asked about a lot is the assumption that when I talk about food in medicine, I'm largely referring to obesity or cardiovascular disease. But the aim of this show is to demonstrate the intersection between between nutrition and lifestyle across the breadth of medical specialties, which is why we're talking today about diet, lifestyle, and cancer. Now, from the get-go, this is gonna sound like a controversial topic because I think the concept has been hijacked by charlatans looking to financially gain from some of the most vulnerable and desperate patients, and this has been sensationalized in the media quite a bit as well. This is not what the show is about. There is evidence of benefit from lifestyle measures to both prevent and manage cancers of various types. And rather than shying away from the subject for fear of being mislabeled, I think it's really important that people are opened up to the knowledge base so they can make informed decisions about themselves. We need to normalize the conversation around nutrition and health. Today, I have the absolute pleasure of inviting fellow doctor and good friend, Dr. Elsa Lumsden. Elsa, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me. Of course, of course. I'm so glad that you could come and, and talk about it because this is obviously a subject well, very close to your heart, I means your profession. Um, but perhaps you want to tell uh, us a, a little about yourself and and, uh, and how you actually uh, got into oncology as a subject and, and how you started your lifestyle medicine uh, journey. Yeah, um, I've been training in oncology since 2009 now, so... Um a fairly long time. I, um, as a junior doctor, I got into oncology because I like the fact that you get to build quite a relationship with your patients. You um, see them sometimes on a weekly or three weekly basis. I'm a bit of a talker and I like, I'm a bit nosy. I like to get involved with people's lives and know what's going on. It's also an incredibly passionate area of medicine. Um, you know, there's no lack of empathy. Everyone's always willing to go the extra mile. 
I find it's a great area of teamwork to work within the hospital. Um, and it, so it just kind of fit with all of my character traits and, and what I wanted to do. Yeah. And so you had uh, your own personal medical problems, right? I was diagnosed when I was a final year medical student with something called achalasia, which is thought to be an autoimmune condition. But basically it's the muscles in my esophagus don't push the food down and it can cause narrowing at the top of the stomach. It was pretty bad when I was first diagnosed. I couldn't really swallow any normal food and I would actually regurgitate food. And when I first got diagnosed, Initially, everyone thought, well, the GPs thought it was um, a psychological problem because I was doing my finals. And so I went through quite a long time trying to get sorted out. And I actually ended up kind of sorting myself out. I've uh, altered my diet until, um, you know, having to use lots of soups and things to be able to swallow things, but also um, aiming to increase nutrition. Finally, kind of got established with the diagnosis and I actually went down the treatment of having surgery only two years ago now. The amount of information I learned about my own body and what I could do to help myself alongside the surgeons with their operation they did for me uh, was amazing. It was and it was mind blowing and it, and it really has changed my outlook on how I practice my medicine. I uh, made quite drastic changes to my diet. Um, lowering the amount of sugar, lowering, mm. generally lowering the carbohydrates. I, I thought I had a balanced diet, I think, mm. like most people do. Yeah. And then when I actually used some of those um, tools like my Fitness Pal, the app, you know, to actually track my diet, I realized I was eating like 80% beige carbohydrates, yeah, yeah. you know, toast for breakfast, sandwich for lunch, spaghetti for dinner. And all of a sudden, you know, that's, there's no fruit and veg in there. It's all carbohydrates. And it was very low protein. Yeah. Um, so by switching, increasing my protein and switching down my carbohydrates um, and like going for a veggie emphasis, um, I felt so much better. I had so much more energy. I was also, I also became quite keen on the exercise and that paradoxically at a time when I wasn't sleeping because I had a young baby that was breastfeeding through the night, suddenly I had more energy from the, from the changes in my diet mixes. And I thought, well, if, if I can do this, yeah. anyone can do this. Yeah. And if I feel this much better, despite my sleep deprivation and my chronic health problems, then, you know, my patients would feel better if I pass on this knowledge. And so that opened the door and I ended up attending a conference where I met yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not always the biggest fan of these calorie counters, but as you've eloquently demonstrated, a lot of people can actually find benefit because it at least maps out what they're actually eating and it makes yeah. you a little bit more conscious about what you're putting into your body as well. And when you can actually see it pictorially or just noted, yeah. you can actually find patterns that perhaps are not as healthy as you assumed they were. Um, and particularly, you know, being a working doctor, busy mum, you're probably just... Craving oh, I was and, just grabbing and yeah. I was falling into all the cliche traps. I only tracked for a week and yeah. that's all it took was yeah. to just be like, oh, right, this is obviously where I'm going wrong. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're going to be talking about cancer today. Yeah. What would be really useful for listeners is to actually... Define what we're talking about. What is cancer? Yeah. And it sounds like a bit of a simple, silly question, mm -hmm. but I, I think it's important. No, I think there's a learn. lot of misconceptions out there. Like cancer really is an umbrella term. As individuals, we are as people, our cancers that we carry are also very, very individual. And that's why there's no one treatment fits all. There is no one diet fits all when you're looking at these treatments. So cancer starts really as, well, we think it starts with a series of mutations. Some of these mutations are inherited, but really only a very small proportion, something like five to 10%. And the rest are somatic mutations that we acquire through our lives, which is one of the reasons why we see more cancers as you get older. The fact is our bodies are made up of like a hundred million, million cells. To put that into context, there's more cells in like your little finger than there are people in China. Okay. And these cells have to turn over every day. 
it's estimated that there's a turnover of about 50 to 70, I think, billion cells turning over every day. In order for a cell to turn over, what that means is it has to copy its DNA to make a daughter cell. So if you just think it's kind of mind boggling that, that your DNA is being copied 50 to 70 billion times a day. Okay. And unfortunately, during that process, unsurprisingly, when you've given the sheer numbers, some mistakes are made. Now, our cells contain amazing processes to try and find those mistakes. People probably have heard of something called like the BRCA mutation. That's one of the DNA repair mechanisms. And that's supposed to go along and repair, find these mistakes and repair them. If you unfortunately inherit that mutation, that's why you have a difficulty repairing DNA mutations. So to be honest, I find it kind of staggering that there's not more cancer yeah. around. Mm. And one of the reasons there's not more cancer around is that we have our fabulous immune systems that go around and find these kind of rogue cells that have these mutations and kill them off. So the reality is we have cells mutating probably all the time. It only matters if the mutation happens in a gene that is a cancer promoter or in a gene that's a tumour suppressor that gets turned off. And even then, once a tumour starts, probably our immune system goes around and nips that tumour in the bud. So it's this combination of, as we get older, we acquire more and more mutations, plus our immune system tends to dampen as we get older. And that's why you see cancers, you know, cancer is most prevalent in the population over 55 mm -hmm. for those reasons. Exactly. Yeah. So we're, we're likely to acquire more breaks, more mutations, yeah. and our immune system is less likely to be robust enough to deal with those mm -hmm. and kill them essentially and Absolutely. get rid of them. Yeah. There are a number of different things that can impact whether you're in a pro-cancerous and an anti-cancerous state. Is that correct? Every day, you know, walking through life, we are exposed to things that can cause cancer. Anyone that reads the Daily Mail knows that pretty much anything in the room can cause cancer. Yeah. Um, but no. And this is why I find it quite <laughs> no, un, it's like it's uneducational, right? It's like we know, like we're we're currently in a room right now Hello. where there are pro-cancerous things, or we're you know we're having. I'm not having a fizzy drink, but if I was having a drink, there might be some constituents that have been shown in a petri dish to be pro-cancerous. It doesn't really help us because it we have these incredible systems that you've just described mm. that protect us yeah. so much. You know, that's where you can um, have a protective lifestyle. So that's where things like exercise gets involved. And that's where uh, things like um, maintaining a normal, healthy weight and where a good nutritious diet can become involved because those all of those things support your immune system to keep it healthy, to keep looking for those rogue cells and decreasing the chances of developing a tumour. Absolutely. Which is what we're going to hopefully discuss today. <laughs> yeah. So why don't we kick off with exercise, actually? Because I think that yeah. was one of the things that it kind of spurred you on your own lifestyle mm -hmm. journey. You're a big uh, BBG fan, yeah, is it? Yeah, BBG. I still don't, what does that mean, BBG? Bikini bodyguard. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I didn't ask that question now. <laughs> well, it's banded around everywhere. You know, I think it's great it that everywhere. so many people are, are, you know, BBG round 47 or whatever. <laughs> I don't know what that means. But, <laughs> but it's good that it encourages people no, to... It's a workout you, know. you can do from home, which when I, I started doing it when my son, my second child, was only four months old. And uh -huh. so it's just, for me, I could, there was no way I was going to get to a gym. So yeah. that's why I, I got onto the bandwagon and it, and it worked. It got that's me into great. exercise. It was a, it's a kind of um, a graduated programme. So, you know, you need that when you're unfit because you've just been through pregnancy. Uh, but yeah, no, exercise has actually got some of the most robust evidence. You know, there was a huge systematic review in 2010 which uh, looked at a huge number of published and peer-reviewed articles and basically found that exercise is safe during cancer treatment and after cancer treatment. So, you know, it's not one to be shied away from. 
you should always consult your doctor and um, potentially get specific advice for your particular cancer and what is going on with you because there obviously will be some exercise that will not suit what you're doing. But in general, exercise is certainly not contraindicated and is encouraged and has been shown to um, improve response rates in things like breast cancer. And as an NHS doctor, you're under the same constraints as most specialties and GPs as well with the amount of time they're actually able to have, although I appreciate that you probably see them more often. Is this something you actually talk about with, with patients oh, or you gosh. get a chance to? No, I wish we did. Yeah. I, I, if people ask me, I will talk about it. But for a new patient, we have 20 minutes and we have to cut, we have to prioritise what we can cover in that session. Yeah. And it has to be the chemotherapy or the radiotherapy, the prognosis, the, the big the big hitters. It and has answering to answering their questions oh, yeah. as well about Absolutely. that because they're going to have a million and one questions. And you know, then- the practicalities of where do I go to get this? Where do I go to do, you know, there's, I mean, there's thousands of things that, you know, actually apply when you, to these consultations. So on a pragmatic basis, no, we don't often get to cover this stuff. It doesn't get discussed and it's a shame. And it's one of my bugbears. I have this dream that one day we'll have this funded service where I can have a clinic where there'll be a physio and a dietitian and myself and the surgeon and a pharmacist who's specialist in oncology because the drugs are getting mm. you know huge and people are taking lots of supplements so we do need a specialist pharmacist to advise us on interactions and things. Mm. so i dream of this kind of poly like a multidisciplinary clinic where um where patients can basically see us all and get the right advice so, so exercise as you mentioned is, is probably got the most evidence behind it is there a plausible biological reason as to why this is so beneficial for cancer sufferers and protective uh, from cancer um, I think there's been kind of several um, mechanisms that have been proposed to explain the benefit, the protective benefits. I think a reduction in circulating levels of insulin and hormones and other growth factors obviously enables you to maintain a normal body weight for your height. Gotcha. And um, the other interesting thing is that a physical exercise done during certain periods of your life. So if you're particularly physically active as a as a young as a child or an adolescent, seems to confer a protective influence much later on in life so active kids active kids very important very important very in with the uh, current message going exactly yeah (laughs) yeah there's a lot of that i think and the the benefits are just so far reaching i think absolutely there's probably lots of other things within exercise that may not have been researched as as specifically uh, in in papers but may have effects on cancers so the effect on inflammation for example or immune system you know uh reducing the circulating of of inflammation uh, inflammatory cytokines that confers benefits in everything beyond just cancer as well Mm -hmm. reducing your chance of uh, blood sugar dysregulation, uh, cardiovascular disease, etc. So it's good to know that there's some evidence behind that as well, right? But just kind of thinking ahead that potentially someone out there is listening and they've got cancer, kind of what I do say to patients is that you have to just do what is within your physical capability at that time. You know, I'm not expecting you to go run a marathon. In terms of prevention, yeah, you should follow the guidelines, but, you know, there is some evidence that, that more is better, but obviously then you can go too far and over-exercising is, is also becoming a bit of a problem for some people. But in general, you want to be getting your heart rate up and doing kind of at least 30 minutes, five times a week of kind of moderate risk exercise. And that can be walking. Yeah. You know, walking to the level where you're just struggling to kind of hold a conversation, that, that kind of moderate like, risk walking. I'm assuming not, but are there any recent studies looking at particular types of exercise and their benefits? I'm thinking specifically of yoga, actually, because I yeah. keep on getting loads of people 
patience coming to say, you know, I, I started doing yoga. It's fantastic. I feel much better on myself. It's improved yeah. my circulation, the way I think. And there's probably loads of intangible there's, benefits there's of that of, as well. There's a lot of a link between yoga and cancer. And yeah. I think it's because it's a, a form of exercise that you can do, you know, when you are fatigued and, and when life is a little bit harder because you're going through cancer treatment. And it obviously helps with the meditation, the quietening of the mind, the psychological help that yoga brings and obviously the psychological difficulties that you have when you're facing um, a cancer diagnosis. Yeah. The other the other exercise type I was going to mention is that I think it's really important to recognise that sarcopenia is a real problem. Okay. So sarcopenia mm. is when you get kind of muscle wasting. It's something we see anyway with ageing. It's it's very dramatic if if patients are in bed for any length of time, and we do see it during cancer treatment. And so, anything you can do to maintain your muscle mass is associated with better outcomes. So, maintaining a protein in your diet. I'm not asking you to lift weights, but um, you need to be able to put resistance on those muscles to help make them stronger. So, you know, doesn't mean going down to the gym and and doing some <laughs> deadlifts or something. Yeah, yeah. But it, it does mean resistance exercise, not just cardiovascular exercise, is is very beneficial in in cancer treatment and afterwards to rebuild some of the muscle that is lost by the sedentary behavior. Absolutely. Oh, and that's the other thing to mention is that exercise is not just an event, it needs to be a lifestyle. So, mm. the there's other evidence to show that the protective benefits of exercise are not just showing up and doing a 30-minute workout once a day, but it's it's about not being inactive. Mm. So if you just do 30 minutes a day and then sit and at a desk for down. the rest of the day, you're not really getting all the benefits. Mm -hmm. And actually a lot of fit people will say, oh, I'm really fit, I, you know, but you may really fit, but you might be quite inactive in your desk job or whatever. And actually it's really important every 90 minutes to walk around for two mm. minutes just to get that circulation flowing. Mm. And there's good evidence for that too. I think before we go into sort of like the food element and the uh, the other lifestyle elements, there is a lot of guilt attached to what people should be eating if they mm. have a cancer diagnosis, for example. Mm. And that, I think that's something that we want to address straight away, right? Because yeah. there is a lot of pressure these days, potentially from themselves, but also maybe family members or friends that they should mm. be eating this, or perhaps mm. you should be on this particular diet, or I've heard about the alkaline diet and all that kind of stuff. And the link between lifestyle and cancers is not across the board. So it's not your fault. Absolutely. What I... When we were talking about how many cell divisions there are in, you know, in a day, there was a, a, a great paper out, um, I think it was 2016, where done by some statisticians that looked at the sheer numbers of kind of cell mistakes and cell copying errors in the different cancers. And they estimated how many were due to inherited factors versus lifestyle and what we'd call modifiable factors versus just straight DNA copying errors that have slipped through the net. And for some cancers the sheer majority are just bad luck. It's DNA copying mistakes and there's not much altering your lifestyle's going to do. For other cancers, most notably uh, like breast and colorectal cancer, there are a bigger percentage of which are modifiable risk factors. So, and I, I guess the most, most obvious one would be lung cancer and yes. smoking. Yeah. yeah. Okay, but even then, I think it was, I think they estimated that 35% of those mutations were just sheer DNA copying errors. And, and I mean, I've certainly treated many people with lung cancer who've never, who smoked, never smoked in their life, yeah. you know, mm. and we all know someone who's smoked their entire lives and never got lung cancer. None of this is binary. Exactly. Okay. It's, mm. And that's what we have to remember is that, you know, that there shouldn't, I can't, it, it breaks my heart. I've had numerous patients come into me. I've been vegan all my life. I've done yoga all my life. Why me? You know, this isn't fair. And it's not fair. No. Like, let's just get this straight. Like, it is not fair. And it is not your fault 
Okay. Even if you smoke, it's still not your fault. 35% of those are DNA copying errors. Okay. That's really important to me that we kind of got that out there and, totally, and kind of yeah. made that I mean, clear. Even across social media and in, in clinic as well, I get patients probably with the same disposition who are vegetarian their whole life. They've mm. led a very healthy lifestyle. Uh, they have a great mindset, they have a great family, they've got environment, all the rest of it, and they still get cancer. It can just be sure bad luck. And it, yeah. in, in, in a lot of cases, it is. Yeah. And I guess the, the other way I like to see it is that if you are super healthy and you do everything and you eat everything right, you're not immune. Mm. So don't think just because you are super, super healthy that you should ignore symptoms. Get checked out. Nobody is immune. Mm-hmm. Anyone yeah. can be affected if we look at it from the flip side. Having said that, <laughs> we're okay. gonna we're gonna we're Let's gonna talk, talk about, about what we can do. We can do exactly, yeah. yeah. So something we get asked about a lot is sugar. Sugar and cancer. Oh, <laughs> I, it's it, it does literally sometimes. It's, it makes it's very difficult because people get very passionate about sugar and cancer. So I, I'm going to tread carefully here. I think everybody could benefit by lowering their sugar intake. I'm going to put that out there. Yeah. I think I felt better by lowering my sugar intake. I'm pretty sure everyone in the current Western, average Western diet eats too much sugar. And unfortunately, there are just so many ways in which it's presented to us and we are oh, unmindfully so, yeah, eating. It's hidden. Yeah. It's hidden. And that's the complications that come with processed food is that there's often hidden sugar and salt in those foods. I do think sometimes the rhetoric gets too far. I, I had a family come in where, where it was father and son. Father was very, very unwell with advanced pancreatic cancer in a very cachectic state. Cachexia is where like the cancer um, has increased the metabolism in the body. So you start literally wasting away and it's it's very difficult state. In that position, you really need high protein, high calories, high fat foods to, to, to keep you kind of, to keep you going and to try and build some of that muscle mass up. And yet there's a lot of information out there, especially on the internet that talks about how it's really important that you have low or no sugar, the benefits of a ketogenic diet, which is basically... I think less than 50 grams of carbs a day, isn't it? It's very, very yeah, low. Yeah. And even, I think one of the one of the stu- one of the big studies is um, ketogenic with caloric restriction as well. Right. So it's so it's it's very extreme. Yeah, and brutal, for these patients yeah. that are very, very unwell, it can be very, very uncomfortable. And you've got to remember, he's in the advanced stages. And so th- this one case I remember was really difficult because you had a son who passionately wanted to save his father, passionately, obviously only wants the best for his dad, but his dad's in his seventies was feeling ill, was fairly fed up and it was causing conflict. And at a time where they should be enjoying their time together, mm. arguing over the nuances of his diet was, I felt, inappropriate. I got to know the family and I got to see what was going on and I actually did say something, which I actually wouldn't normally do, but yeah. I felt like it was so unfair and I, and I needed to, I wanted to unburden him of this, this guilt to kind of convince his father that there was another way or something. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, so I think the sugar rhetoric has gone too far on the internet sometimes. And I think actually all of these things need to be taken in the context of each person. You know, I'm not a dietitian. I'm not a nutritionist. I'm a, I'm a doctor. I haven't had, as as you've discussed yes, largely, yeah, largely yeah. I've never, we haven't had much nutritional training. I only know what I've learned myself through doing my job and through educating myself when I was ill. I would always send someone like that, I would always offer and or recommend that they go and see a trained professional yeah. to try and get, because I think each patient needs a nuanced dietary advice, not a blanket fits all. Everyone, everyone with cancer should be on a ketogenic diet, or, you know, or at least um, a low sugar diet. I think you have to just take each case by case discussion. Having said that, there's some very interesting trials being done in 
gliomas or brain tumors with with ketogenesis glioblastomas yeah, yeah with um with ketogenesis That's so it'll be really interesting, interesting to yeah. see how that comes out yeah and i'm completely open-minded to all of these things i Absolutely. just think mm. i just think we have to wait for a little bit longer and it certainly will not be a one size fits all there's no one treatment that's going to treat everyone so exactly. why would one diet and i think yeah, totally. sometimes sugar gets hailed as this yeah. devil you know and it's just actually let's take it down a peg and let's look at the whole fact of food is not just about nutrition mm. it's about socializing it's mm. about love especially at difficult times food can be a real expression of love people want to cook for you if you're not well people want to look after you and if you're sat in a corner eating i don't know sardines or something mm, yeah, you know yeah, trying try you know that you're socially yeah. isolating yourself at a time when actually you need to be with other people so that's my two cents on sugar. <laughs> on the subject of sugar, there's some interesting stuff looking at metformin, which is... There is a, some really interesting stuff yeah, looking at metformin. Classic I mean, anti-diabetic medication that we use quite commonly mm. and its effect on lowering the rates of cancer, right? Yeah, it's being... They're rolling out some quite big studies looking at it as an adjuvant treatment, which means an additional treatment to what the conventional treatment would be. So using it in, as an adjunct to radiotherapy. Anecdotally, I know a few patients that take it off license, so they don't have diabetes, but they take it off license because of the baseline data they've seen. It's not something I could prescribe off license as a, as a doctor. There's a theoretical base there to try and reduce the inflammatory, the insulin and the, and the IGF-1 and the underlying kind of sugar dysregulation and to try and control all of that and see if it does dampen down yeah. that response and so enhance the effect of the of the conventional therapies. Yeah. And there's this concept of uh, the tumour microenvironment mm -hmm. and how we can affect that, mm -hmm. glucose being one of the things, but also certain micronutrients. And we're talking about anti-angiogenesis as well, yeah. right? Which is something that gained a lot of popularity off the back of a TED talk from Dr. Yeah. Lin, how yeah. that might not be the best way to look at tumours right well i think all this there's all of these things so the the metformin the sugar the anti-angiogenesis anti -angiogenesis thing yeah. they're all looking which at, i should sorry uh, clarify what yeah. we mean by that the microvascular environment of the tumor itself and yeah because tumors need to they can't depend on like our blood supply they need their own blood supply because they grow so fast they secrete growth factors to build their own blood supply and it's been a theory for a while that if we can block that the cancer would starve itself of oxygen because there wouldn't be blood to deliver it and there's and there are drugs that target these pathways that are used in some of the cancers but they're not these drugs are not universally successful across all the board it, you know it certainly hasn't been the heroic savior or the silver bullet but it's an interesting other factor. But what I would like to say is that, you know, when you're looking at these, all of these different factors that we're talking about, all of these diets end up advising the same thing. Yeah. So actually, what we need to do is to, not to be rude, but, you know, remove <laughs> some of the BS and actually focus on actually what can you do? Yeah. Well, you can overcrowd your plate with vegetables. Yeah. You can eat, <laughs> eat the rainbow because then you get all the polyphenols and you can do all the positive things and you'll affect all of these different downstream events so you'll you know you're by by crowding out your plate with vegetables you'll be lowering your sugar intake exactly. you won't be eating the beige foods that are full of sugar and the ultra high processed foods and we haven't really talked about genotoxins much but there are things that sneak into our foods you're probably all aware that you know bacon was demonized <laughs> and sausages yeah. and it's it's because processed meats often have nitrites or nitrates yes. in them and they and that's been shown to potentially have a genotoxic effect which means it causes mutations which could cause cancer so it's been labelled, I think, by the the who have labelled it, yes, a, a, yeah, a, a potential true. carcinogen. So it's not to say that we can't ever eat bacon, but we shouldn't eat it all the time. Exactly. And actually, yeah. if you take a positive approach, and the way I like to think about food is not what I can restrict, but what I can put in. Yes. 
So if you fill your plate with all the positive things, the broccolis, the brassicas, the apples, the pomegranate seeds, all of these things, <laughs> the leucopene from the tomatoes, yeah, yeah. all of these things that are superfoods, actually, they're all just what we all know, which is a Mediterranean diet has been proven to be beneficial to reduce your risk of cancer versus exactly. A typical Western diet. Exactly. Which, uh, again, what you mentioned, like all foods are really super because they have all these incredible yeah. benefits of them. Yeah. If we, they're we natural can... foods away from processed foods. Exactly. So on a spectrum of whole versus processed, you really just want to move our dial towards the more whole food side because yeah. that's where we're going to actually reap the benefits of those different plant chemicals that we talk about. And I think like there's lots of different ways in which people like to dissect certain anti-cancerous foods. Yeah. They might look at the antigen or this is affecting blood supply or yeah. this is reducing the glucose so we're we're reducing yeah. the energy source of the tumor whereas actually when we concentrate on the bigger picture which yeah. is getting a variety of these different foods they are affecting multiple different pathways yeah and, and it's uh, the synergy between exactly. the foods and it's a very re- reductionist thinking and it's a, it's the same way as trying to make I don't know, a plant or a chemical, even, you know, a curcumin within t- turmeric is trying to pick things out and make them a pill. Exactly. And that's our, I think that's an outdated old fashioned medical model. And I think we need to look more holistically. The way going forward is not to be so reductionist about the minutiae yeah. of what's happening, but look at the bigger picture. Well, this is something I think the pharmaceutical industry could probably learn from, right? Having a more holistic approach, because I think like you just talked about, anti-angiogenic uh, medications, mm. the drugs that were formulated, were touted as potentially being really, really amazing like having the silver yeah, across effect, all the cancers yeah. across all the cancers exactly this is the one thing that we need to target mm. whereas actually there are so many different processes going on within a cancer within yeah. the human body you know it's going to take a multi-targeted approach and the food that you put in not to say that food is going to cure cancer um, it's certainly having those sorts of beneficial effects on multiple different levels rather than isolating and that's that's what I mean I have patients that come in with cancer and without cancer as well mm. that take specific supplements to prevent themselves from cancer or, mm. or uh, attacking the cancer. And these are things that they've heard in the papers. Whereas actually, you want to focus on getting these from the whole sources, the grapes, the beets, mm. the, the brassica vegetables, those sorts of things. And that's probably mm. the best way of doing it because there's actually lots of evidence behind the biological mechanisms behind why these certain foods work, right? So Absolutely. And, and there is a lot of theoretical evidence behind why they work. But to try and unpick it and to, and to you know, we're not going to mm. be able to do a randomised control trial trial of I don't know how much broccoli someone eats so, <laughs> yeah. um, so that, you know I, mean, I find it particularly fascinating like and I, I like to hide <laughs> recording people. how much broccoli you eat no 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 no, <laughs> <laughs> no I, I find it really fascinating how these individual constituents of food can have effect at the cellular level so so if you're a frame for example which is a, a component in brassica vegetables you get it in cabbage and cauliflower and broccoli yeah. and that kind of stuff and the mechanism as to why this has an anti-inflammatory effect stabilizing certain uh, cells and, and how that crosses the cell wall and all that kind of stuff. Not to say we eat brassica vegetables for this sulfurophane yeah. content. We yeah, eat no. it for, you know, the enjoyment of broccoli and I find broccoli rather enjoyable. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I find it really fascinating that there is uh, a reason as to why these have uh, anti-cancer effects and at least yeah. in a preventative Oh, role. absolutely. I did, my, um, I did my PhD in molecular biology um, in prostate cancer, and I looked specifically at microRNAs. They were only discovered in 2007, and they kind of they kind of blow my mind a little yeah, bit um, yeah. because they are basically fine tuning everything. But when I remember one part, I, I, it was just like a line in my PhD. But the breast milk from mothers, there are microRNAs found from the mother's breast milk that survive through the infant's digestive system, and so alter the infant's 
DNA. Wow. I know. It's the same with food. It's in plants. You know, we're eating. There's a difference between a cellular carbohydrate and an acellular carbohydrate. You know, when we're eating plants, we're eating cells, we're eating DNA, we're eating RNA, we're eating microRNAs. And and we're eating... Phytochemicals. Phytochemicals, that's the yeah. word I was yeah. looking for. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So we're eating all these things. It's, it's, so, you know, a piece of broccoli is not a piece of broccoli. It's... I don't know. It's, it's amazing. Um, you know, versus a, I don't know, let's take a biscuit, which is just empty calories in many ways. I mean, they're delicious empty calories. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I eat yeah. biscuits. When you look at them side by side, you know, you just can't compare it. And you start, I, I found as my eyes got open to all these things, it was a bit, I, you know, I started looking at where can I put vegetables into my meal? Yes. So how can I include fruit and vegetables with my breakfast? And I do eat fruit, even though it's got sugar in it. Because yeah, I, I like fruit. Of course, <laughs> um, but it's also got polyphenols and it has, has fibre yeah, and it's going to affect your... all the things yeah. we've said. So again, I'm not an anti... I'm not a big sugar demon. I'm, I, I still eat sugar. I just don't necessarily have the big box of Maltesers at 3pm, which I used to do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think having these like different variety of vegetables also... I mean, people talk about antioxidants and, yeah. and how these are uh, scavenge-free radicals and all the rest of it. This is just like another dimension as to why food can be so healthy mm. for multiple reasons, not mm. even just cancer but multiple different conditions yeah absolutely antioxidants are big i mean it's difficult they've done some they've done some actually really big trials and a big systematic review of of vitamin e and and vitamin c and they can't draw evidence so we can't recommend them but having said that the theory's there and perhaps it's because it's in supplement form versus being in real food form exactly um i mean i don't know if we need to go over what the mediterranean diet is but the mediterranean diet is kind of proven to be the most cancer protective Mm. diet and that's a diet that's rich in kind of locally sourced real foods mostly plant-based but with some fish and good fats such as avocado oils olive oils nuts It's really interesting looking at vegetables because they have an indirect effect as well on regulating the phase one oxidative and phase two conjugative metabolizing enzymes as well, which actually improve our ability to remove things like environmental pollutants. Absolutely. And deal if with, our liver's on form, then yes. we should be able to deal with all these pollutants that we're exposed to and detox our body. Exactly. So yet another reason as to why this sort of diet is going to be very protective for us as well. I think a colleague of yours, uh, Professor Robert Thomas, he's done a lot of work in this and he's actually got quite a big interest in this, isn't he? And, you know, he's a big promoter of written a couple of books, yeah, and he's done some studies in in pomegranates. Exactly, yeah. yeah, Pomegranates and uh, some extracts that you get from broccoli and stuff like that. I remember it was at one of his lectures because we were lecturing at the same time. And uh, he looked at the dietary inflammatory index of mm-hmm. certain foods and found a, a vegan macrobiotic diet was the least inflammatory. Whether that's the best for mm. cancer is another question, but it's very interesting to note why inflammation might be one of those yeah, things that you really want to try. Yeah, we haven't talked about inflammation yeah, yet, have we? Yeah, um, and again, it's another reason as to why vegetables might might be anti-cancerous. Yeah. But yeah. It's well proven that chronic low-level inflammation leads to cancer. And then um, that links into why they think, one of the reasons they think obesity is linked to an increased rate of cancer. And that is because they believe that there is a low level chronic inflammation in, when you're in an obesogenic state. Exactly. Because that adiposity leads to inflammation. The cells are quite metabolically active and that leads to that Yeah, low I grade. think there's higher levels of insulin, IGF-1 yes. and chronic inflammation from that point of view. Plus the adipose tissue often disrupts your hormonal profiles. Mm-hmm. You have a lot of aromatase in fat, so you mm-hmm. can have higher levels of estrogen circulating. Mm-hmm. Chronic inflammation generally is, isn't good for cancer. They have looked at lower inflammatory diets. I mean, you could go whole hog and go the kind of paleo, very low inflammatory diet. Mm-hmm. A vegan diet's very low inflammatory, but I think the problem with a vegan diet is the lack of B12 mm-hmm. and iron. 
But if you address those in other ways, then exactly. then you can cover your back there. Mm-hmm. But again, it comes down to what we've said, which is that if you eat plants, you kind of protect yourself. Yeah, um, exactly. So yeah. it kind of all comes back to the same. You know, they've done studies. They haven't found one diet fits all. I'm not sure they ever will because I personally believe each each type of cancer is different and each person is different. So, you know, we've all got genetic mutations within us that make us metabolize food differently, like make us handle food differently. We're all of a different body composition. We're all bigger or smaller or, you know, there's so many variables here that, you know, the idea that we can just work this out, you know, I, I think is, is, is not true. And so what, what I tell people and my, my patients is that um, to do some self-experimentation, mm, mm. find what works for you as long as it does no harm. Mm, exactly. Yeah. And I think do no harm is certainly the, the forefront of what we as doctors are all taught to do. Yeah. But certainly when it comes to diet and lifestyle changes, mm. there's very little harm you can do as long as you're doing it very pragmatically. Absolutely. Um, when it comes to vitamins, I'm imagining you check vitamin D levels, right? Yeah, we do actually check because, um, as I said, I'm, I'm working in breast oncology. So a lot of our patients need bone-modifying agents, which are things like bisphosphonates. Um, we do check everybody's vitamin D. And what is always strikes me is how low everybody's vitamin yeah. D is. Mm. I mean, scraping the bottom of the barrel low. Mm. You know, it's national guidance now in this country that yeah. everyone should be taking a vitamin D supplementation. They should be taking 800 to 1,000 units a day through the winter months because we cannot synthesize enough through our skin between, I think it is October and March because yeah. of the angle of the sun. We just do not get enough UV rays. So I think it's really important people realize that. I think vitamin D is very important, not just in its uh, the bone and calcium homeostasis, but also potentially as an immune modulating agent. Yeah, yeah. it really does have an effect on so many different processes yeah. around the body. And even though it might not have a very well recognized or clinically proven effect on cancer rates. That would be very hard to prove, to be yeah. fair. And I think, mm. I think there's enough background science that makes me convinced that we should all be taking it yes. at the recommended rates. Um, I certainly take it and I, I we do check all our patients and the majority of them end up with supplements because <laughs> very few people have normal levels, as I said. The gut microbiome. We haven't even talked yeah, about that. So yeah. the population, it comes up every single podcast, but the population of microbes that live in and around your body largely concentrate in your gut and how that is having an impact on cancer. I mean, that's a, it's really exciting. Really exciting, right? Yeah. It's relatively in its infancy, I think, in terms of cancer, but there have been some really exciting kind of preliminary results coming through. There was a an abstract presented at, at ASCO, which is the big oncology meeting, where somebody had looked in the um, stool samples, so in the poo of people that had responded to immunotherapy and people that hadn't. Now, immunotherapy is one of our new treatments for cancer, which we're all very excited about, the checkpoint inhibitors. And they found that the people that had not responded versus the people that had responded had um, very different levels of diversity of their gut bacteria, you know, going as far as saying kind of a dysbiotic gut bacteria in the people that hadn't responded. And the people that had responded had a much healthier gut microbiome with a diverse population of bacteria in there. And I think that's really interesting. The background science is there. It's all been building for a number of years. And I think, you know, that's going to be the next step. It's going to be really interesting to see where that goes. Yeah, absolutely. If we could distill our conversation into sort of actionable points for cancer. It's really hard because it's so nuanced. There's so many different things. But just from our brief conversation, loads of vegetables. Yeah. 
concentrating on things like greens because of their yeah. uh, anti-cancer properties. And if you're talking about microbiota, you're talking about lots of fibre and greens as well, Absolutely. which is good um, prebiotic for all your bacteria to feed them. Exactly. Yeah. So different sorts of prebiotics as well as having a lower inflammatory state. Would you argue that a stress relieving technique could be something that could be beneficial, even if it was just on a personal level? I'm not sure you're going to find the evidence for no, it. No, I doubt it. <laughs> but yeah. I mean, I think it. I think it benefits. Uh, I certainly recommend it for my patients that are coming through clinic. We talk. I spend a lot of my time talking about trying to access some of the charities for psychological counselling and support, as well as there's meditation courses, yoga for meditation. If you need a more active form of meditation, I recommend yoga. Um, I spend a lot of my time talking about that. In many ways, people are more receptive to that than they are to talking about nutrition. Really? And they're least that's... receptive to talking about exercise, I find. Yeah, that's Seriously? kind of the that's order. super interesting. Yeah, people kind of recognise that cancer is psychologically hard to go through. Yeah. Um, I think they then kind of think a bit about the food, but I mean, you've got to remember when someone's going through cancer treatment, we're giving them chemotherapy that's disrupting yeah. their taste buds. They, they lose their appetite or they have high appetites when they're on their steroids. On average, these ladies are putting on a stone in weight when they have their chemotherapy. And it's not just because they're overeating when they have their steroids. Like we're messing with their whole functioning system. So it, it's interesting. Nutrition is, is a very difficult topic to broach when you're in cancer treatment. And I think because it's so multifactorial and because you're dealing with so many different aspects of physically, how do you even get the food in, let alone have yeah. the energy to cook the vegetables you need to cook? It's, it's really yeah. difficult. And that's why I would always always say look when you're right in the midst of the diagnosis is not the time to put the pressure on yeah absolutely okay there is mm. time later on mm. like by all means if you're feeling well and you have lots of energy follow our advice and try and follow a mediterranean diet but if you're lacking in energy don't heap on the blame if you reach for that cookie to give you that little bit of energy to get you through the day i think you know if you can at any point that's the, that's the point but it's a balance between how everybody feels and, and it's about getting the information out so that everybody can make an informed choice about what they put in their mouth. Mm. And I just think there shouldn't be any blame attached or guilt. I think it's important to recognise that a lot of these, um, the stuff we're talking about today is not well supported within the NHS structure. So I actually rely um, quite heavily on some charities that I send the patients to see. So I kind of have to give a shout out to Maggie's. Um, who are a fantastic cancer charity. Um, they will often help patients to access nutritional advice from trained professionals. Um, obviously, the Macmillan is very well known. For breast cancer, there's the Haven. And then I also want to kind of give a shout out to some smaller charities like Eat Out Smart Cancer. Yes. They do cookery demonstrations, including a lot of information about um, healthy food and how to incorporate it into your diet whilst in a cancer diagnosis or after the treatment's finished. Um, and that's all run by Jenny Phillips. And she also has a very good book called Eat Out Smart yeah. Cancer, which I think has a very pragmatic approach, just like I tried to take, where you take the science with a pinch of salt in places and mingle it with the realism of what it is like to actually be going through cancer treatment. I really want to say that I'm conscious that people that are listening to this may be going through cancer at the moment, maybe going through the treatment and the diagnosis. And there should be no pressure to make drastic changes to your lifestyle or to feel a sense of stress or burden about what may have gone on in your life before and what decisions you've made before. I want you to try and use this information as a sense of empowerment where you can regain your health at your own pace and draw on others for support. And remember that food is more than nutrition and it's, it's a social necessity. It is an expression of love. There are only benefits to be gained, I think, from treating your body in a way that means it's well-nourished and gently exercised and emotionally sound. I think that's a really good way to round up this pod. And thank you so much for coming, honestly, and sharing your insights. We can find you at... 
I'm at Dr. Underscore Elsa, which is A-I-L-S-A. Elsa. <laughs> Elsa <laughs> Everyone good. says Elsa. I'm not the frozen princess. You're not the frozen princess. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. <laughs> That was a fantastic conversation I had with Dr. Elsa, who is an amazing physician. She is super, super passionate about the subject. And I love her perspective, particularly when it comes to making sure we're not burdening patients with the guilt of having to live the most perfect lifestyle as possible to try and improve their condition. I think that's something that's a really, really important take home point. Now, to summarize our conversation, which was very varied, I would suggest a nutrient dense diet that is getting all the different colors of the rainbow as much as possible because they have things like polyphenols, the different sorts of micronutrients that we all need to improve the functioning of our body and remember there are so many intricate mechanisms that our body has to protect us it's really important to maintain sight of that greens are fantastic now we kept on going on about broccoli but there are loads of different types of greens that you can get to your diet there's brussels sprouts it's rockets and these are particularly interesting because there is some evidence looking at the constituents the chemical components of these and why these have anti-cancer effects They are delicious if cooked in the right way. And one of my recipes that I think conjures up all the different things that we've talked about is the chestnut broccoli and peas that I actually have for breakfast. And I encourage people to experiment with different greens at breakfast time as well. We talked about low sugar. Now, in a Western diet, we have a lot of refined processed foods that is very high in sugar. Sugar isn't the devil. It is not something that we need to radically remove from our diets, but certainly most people would benefit from reducing the number of added sugars in our foods. Lifestyle is super important. Elsa is a really big fan of exercise, in prevention as well as management of cancer but also things like yoga stress relieving techniques and even meditation can be beneficial from a psychological point of view as well make sure you subscribe to the podcast and you listen out for the next one hey it's danny pellegrino from everything iconic Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Roller coaster prices, supply chain glitches, political unease. Aeon has expert points of view on volatility from around the world. Paired with local insights that help me get back on solid ground. Better decisions. Aeon. 